even spiritual disciplines are at their best a means to an end. What I mean is that spiritual disciplines, they are only as effective in forming your soul as they are effective in ushering you into the presence of Jesus. Reading your Bible is not going to, quote, change your life. Being with Jesus as you read the Bible will change your life. It's about the presence of God, being with him, that ushers us into this transformative work. So the goal is this. The goal of prayer, it isn't to pray. The goal of fasting is not to not eat food. The goal of silence is to not get rid of thoughts. The goal of worship and every other spiritual practice is this, encounter Jesus. Encounter Jesus. That's why spiritual disciplines on their own are only a piece of what it means when Jesus says, come to me. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Spiritual Formation Podcast, a place where we have conversations that lead to transformation. I'm your host, Nathan Williams, and on today's episode, I will be sharing with you a message that I had the opportunity of preaching just a couple of weeks ago, so it is fresh on my mind, fresh in my heart, and I believe that there is something of significance here for us as we continue to discuss how we are formed into the image of Jesus. If you're listening to this podcast, then my assumption is that you likely already see the need in your own life for a deepening in your walk with Jesus. That desire is something that so many of us can relate to, but often when it comes to the how, how do I begin to actually go about doing that? That's where we get stuck. And today, I'm sharing with you a message that I preached out of Matthew chapter 11, where I believe Jesus deals with exactly that question. How do we actually enter into the rest, the easy yoke, and the deep formation that he is offering to us? So today, my prayer for you is that whatever it is that you are currently facing, that you would allow the invitation of Jesus to come into your life, richly dwell within you, so that you can receive that which he is offering to you. Let's get into it. So as we get started, let me ask you this question. Have you ever assumed something to be true that you later found out was false? Have you ever missed the mark in that way? Uh, Several years ago, I was leading a missions trip uh, in Los Angeles, California, And our team was preparing to drive to one of the numerous ministry locations that we were serving at on this trip. And our group was large enough that we needed two separate 15-passenger vans in order to get everyone where they needed to go. So this particular morning, we loaded up in our different vans. I was driving one. My beautiful wife was driving the other. I have her permission, by the way. So we loaded up separately and we left. Now, if you've ever driven in downtown LA, you will know that riding side by side, following each other, caravanning in any way, it's all but impossible. It's just not going to happen. So we both conveniently relied on our GPSs on our phones. We plugged in the locations and and we went on our way. So we get there about 45 minutes. My car does. And I call my wife and I'm like, hey, where are you? What's going on? And she lets me know, like, oh, we're not there yet. So we have this conversation. Say, hey, yeah, give me, give me that address that you plugged in. She's like, this, 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 this. I'm like, yeah, 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 that's right. What zip code? 
Dun, 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 dun. Wrong zip code. Okay? So she had been driving 45 minutes in the opposite direction. It was the right address, totally wrong zip code. And three hours later, she ended up back. And we were, like, finished with the project. And they were frustrated because then they had to drive back into downtown L.A. So the group learned a very important lesson that day. And that is this. Assumptions can be dangerous. Assumptions can be dangerous. And I would challenge us today in saying that as Jesus followers, we too often end up in places that we never thought we would be simply because we've made some very dangerous assumptions about the words of Christ. I want to read this, this passage to you. It's out of Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, and it says this. Then Jesus said, Come to me. All of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy to bear, and the burden I give you is light. You see, Jesus has given us this invitation, but perhaps we, as his followers, we've misunderstood what it even means to be with Jesus. Further, I think there's not a person in this room that doesn't want to take Jesus up on what it is that he's offering to us, which is rest, but we don't know what that rest looks like. And equally concerning, we don't know how to enter into it. So today, what we're going to do is we're going to challenge some assumptions that we are carrying with us so that we can learn how to live in the eternal rest that Jesus is offering to us. And in order to just get us started today, there's two primary questions that I think have to get dealt with in our own hearts and minds if we're going to experience this kind of rest that is deep and full and transformative. So let's start with this first question, and that is this. How do you come to Jesus? How do you come to Jesus? Let's, let's think about the Christian life as a whole. And I want to start by just defining some terms, okay? So I want to talk about discipleship. This is a church word that many of us have heard many times. But today, I am defining discipleship as engaging in the processes, engaging in the practices that Jesus did with the intent to become as Jesus was. So doing the things that Jesus did with the purpose to become as Jesus is. In other words, we often view discipleship as giving ourselves to very particular, very active exercises that we believe are going to allow us to grow in our faith and our maturity as individuals. So that's the first thing. The second thing I want to talk about is spiritual formation, Okay, which I'm defining as anything that forms you. Anything at all, whether intentionally or unintentionally, into the kind of person that you are actively becoming right now. And the reason that I'm taking the time to sort of flesh out these two different terms, discipleship and spiritual formation, is not because they're necessarily inherently different. I believe they're actually not. I think discipleship and spiritual formation should actually go hand in hand. They should be synonymous. But that doesn't change the fact that these two terms have been divorced from one another in our Western form of Christianity many times. This is why a person can participate in what we would call discipleship for 10, 20, even 50 years 
and still lack the deep transformation that comes with being formed into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And the reason is we have mistakenly assumed as people that, quote, doing the right things will yield the right results. But it's not that simple. And that is why this invitation in Matthew 11 matters so deeply. Jesus has invited us, and he said this simple phrase, come to me. Come to me. In verse 29, he says, let me teach you. For I'm humble and gentle at heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. So what this text is revealing to us is that Jesus and Jesus alone can show us the way to transformation. Only he can do it. And not only can he do it, but he wants to. That's why he's inviting us to come to him. He can show us the way. And this this whole phrase that comes from the mouth of Christ is, is the transforming work. Let me. Let me teach you. You see, sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes I become so desperate for change in my life. Have you ever been there? So desperate for transformation that we try to do it on our own, don't we? We exhaust ourselves um, trying to become someone new in our own strength, picking up every self-help trick that we can along the way. Yet Jesus has asked, hey, let me be your teacher. There's an article in New York Magazine that reports that the self-help movement has actually mushroomed into an $11 billion industry that is dedicated to telling us how we can improve our lives. This is what the article said. Today, there are at least 45,000 self-help books in print of the optimize everything cult we now call self-help. Today, every section of the store or the webpage overflows with instructions, anecdotes, and homilies from self-help books. Self-help books replace doctors, replace priests and therapists, and maybe even parents, senators, and teachers. With public personalities who gave names to the problems of millions. Now, let's have a little fun this morning, okay? And I'd like to read you some of the titles of some popular self-help books and the things that we've put our stamp of approval on as a culture and said, yes, I will pay for that. Yes, I will read that. The first is this. How to make people like you in 90 seconds or less. Wouldn't it be nice, right? Another one. Influence. The Psychology of Persuasion, Business and Scientested Strategies for Bending Others to Your Will. Another one, 59 Seconds, Change Your Life in Under a Minute, uh, provides behavioral tweaks in the amount of time that anyone can spare. The Four-Hour Work Week, which is essentially self-help's version of get rich quick or get good at anything, master it in about five minutes. Then there's the four-hour chef, the simple path to cooking like a pro, learning anything and living, quote, the good life. And last but not least, how to think more about sex. Yes, that is the title of the book. It's a bestseller. This is the culture that we live in, church. So in this world where self-help is offering constant assertions that you can solve your greatest problems on your own, all you need is new information, then let me just tell you this. It's easier than ever in following Jesus to get burned out. And when we inevitably reach the end of ourselves, which we will, by the way, we find that there are some things that self-help cannot help. And in the midst of all that noise and all of that pollution of our minds, 
Jesus has promised rest. But in order to receive it, we have to submit to his ways. We have to submit to his teaching. And I don't know about you, but as an obstinate person, um, I rejoice when I hear Jesus revealing himself to be humble and gentle as a teacher. This humble teacher who is full of gentleness, he's offering rest to hurried people. He is offering transformation to people like you and me who perpetually miss the mark again and again and again. That's good news, isn't it? It's good news. We have to participate in the deeds of discipleship. But let's get one thing very clear. It's God who takes those actions that we do. He breathes upon them by his spirit and he spiritually forms us into his likeness. He's doing the heavy lifting. If you would, let, let's, let's consider together the process of taking a shower. It's something we all do, hopefully. I, I hope that I can say that with confidence, okay? But I believe that the process of taking a shower actually can really help us better understand the spiritual life. So in the shower, while we are the ones that do the scrubbing, it's really the soap that does all the cleaning, Right? For instance, we can get in the shower and we can scrub, scrub, scrub all day long, but all of your scrubbing without soap will not make you clean. Okay, at a church, I want you to get that image in your head. That right there is a very accurate picture of what most of our attempts at discipleship without spiritual formation look like, because spiritual formation only comes by the Spirit. So we try really hard to scrub ourselves. I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to worship. I'm going to do this and that. And we're just scrubbing, scrubbing, scrubbing. And the Holy Spirit comes along. He says, hey, would you like me to breathe upon this? Let me be the soap here. Let me actually do something with your scrubbing so that it can actually accomplish something in you. You see, this is, this is exactly what I think theologian and philosopher John Coe of Biola University had when he wrote this. He said, spiritual disciplines do not transform. They only become relational opportunities to open the heart to the Spirit who does transform. We mistakenly have believed that coming to Jesus is only what happens when we do the activities that we call church. But the beauty of what Christ has revealed here is that even spiritual disciplines are at their best a means to an end. What I mean is that spiritual disciplines, they're only as effective in forming your soul as they are effective in ushering you into the presence of Jesus. Reading your Bible is not going to, quote, change your life. Being with Jesus as you read the Bible will change your life. It's about the presence of God, being with him, that ushers us into this transformative work. So the goal is this. The goal of prayer, it isn't to pray. The goal of fasting is not to not eat food. The goal of silence is to not get rid of thoughts. The goal of worship and every other spiritual practice is this, encounter Jesus. Encounter Jesus. That's why spiritual disciplines on their own are only a piece of what it means when Jesus says, come to me. Each day of our lives, these activities, they they fall short utterly short in describing the kind of life that I think God is calling us into together. So today, we have to understand that spiritual formation is neutral. It's unbiased. Um, And that means every single one of us, every person breathing in this room is currently being formed 
You're currently being influenced in a lot of different ways by something during this season. The question is, what is it? What's forming you? Uh, Kevin Van Hooser, he's an American theologian and scholar, he once said this, culture is in the full-time business of spiritual formation. Culture is in the full-time business of spiritual formation. And what that means is that we are constantly being influenced. There are billion-dollar industries in marketing that are, they have one goal, to distract you and influence you, okay? So whether the transformation that you're experiencing right now in this season of your life is godly or worldly, it totally depends on what are you giving yourself to. What are you giving your mind to, your time to, your thoughts to, your attention to? So God, he's constantly on mission in your life and in my life to conform us into the image of Jesus. We've, We've established that. But what we often miss is that the world and our enemy is constantly looking to malform or deform us into its own distorted image at the very same time. And and Paul warns of this in Romans 12 too. I want to read this passage to you. Paul says, don't copy the behavior, the customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. So so Paul, he, he reveals that he's concerned He's saying, I'm concerned for you because my fellow Christians, they're being integrated into the culture around them and they don't even realize it. And I believe that that warning is especially necessary for you and for me in light of just another assumption that so many Christians make. Most followers of Jesus mistakenly believe that spiritual formation only happens when I'm active. The unavoidable truth, however, is that most of the way that we change, most of the way that we are formed happens when we are passively just going through life. So my wife, Steph, and I, I'll tell tell you a little bit about us. Um, We started dating in high school. We met in fourth grade. So we were were grade school friends. We started dating through high school. We dated through high school, college, and all that. But Growing up, we spent a lot of time at each other's houses, um, and because when we started dating, we were back and forth, we quickly began to realize that we just did some things very differently, um, and one of those things was that Steph um, would always do the dishwasher's job for it. I don't know if there's anyone in this room that suffers from the same ailment. What I mean is that she would essentially wash every single dish and then put it into the dishwasher. Um, and this was really troubling to me. It was a big red flag because I thought, you know, the dishwasher probably enjoyed its job and it would like to fulfill the one specific task that it was created to do. So we had some conflict there. Um, So then we get married, you know, this is years ago. Then we get married and um, I start loading the dishwasher and Steph's not having it. She's like, you've got to, you've got to rinse that thing off. And I'm like, nope, I'm not going to. So we have this debacle and it goes on and on until a few years into our marriage. And then I find myself loading the dishwasher, and I go to close the door, and I shut it, and I hit start, and I, I realize in horror that I just washed off every single dish that I put into that dishwasher. Now, track with me here. Steph did not 
manipulate me. She did not threaten me with violence to, to do this. I just spent every day with Steph. I just watched her load the dishwasher for year after year after year. And the fact is, it changed me without me even being aware of it. Here's the point. Who you give yourself to, what you give yourself to on a daily basis, it changes you. It changes you. Even if you spend, like, let's take a hypothetical person. Even if you spend 20 minutes a day with Jesus, but then every night you're spending four hours with Netflix, who do you think is really forming you? Who do we think is actually influencing us more? The problem is that with the use of technology, we can easily invite folks into our living rooms, into our cars while we drive, our headphones while we mow or do whatever, and they're all influencing us. We listen to podcasts, we read books, blogs, social media posts, and it's all forming you. And it's passive. It's passively happening. Despite any discipleship that we're committing to in our lives, what we find is that the things that are forming us most are these things that creep into our lives, and we don't even see it happen until it's too late. So we have to realize today that all of our actions, all of our thoughts, all of our decisions, they're, they're doing something to us. In other words, our habits, they're not neutral. They play a key role in the people that we're going to turn out to become. The people that we surround ourselves, the content that you and I devour, the role models that we're going to imitate, the composition of our schedules, it's all playing a role. So please hear me. Spiritual formation does not just happen when we want it to. It's happening all the time. And I don't know about you, but when I open up my Bible or when I come to church or when I do these different things, I want to say, oh, like, I want this to change me. And we, we tip the scale and we give it weight in a way that says this is more important. But that's not how our minds work. That's not how our lives work. Jesus himself, by the way, he recognized this principle. Okay, he didn't show up to his disciples and say, hey, guys, why don't we start a Monday night Torah study and get together for about an hour and a half and ask some questions and then go on our merry way? He said, follow me. Pick up your cross, leave your family, leave your bed, leave all your stuff, follow me. Leave everything. Spend every minute of every single day watching me, being with me, asking me questions. Friends, when we realize that coming to Jesus is actually, it's not just doing disciplined things, it's living every second of your life with a constant awareness that God is with you and he's going to maintain his presence to you. It's right then that we begin to do everything in our lives from work to relationships, from difficulties to celebrations, all with Jesus in real time. Then we find that we actually do have the ability to be transformed, not by our doing, not by hard work, not by self-help, but by his grace. So think about it. The disciples, they were transformed. If you read the, just look at Peter. Look at Peter's life and look at where he starts and look at where he ends. It's unbelievable the transformation that takes place. But let's talk about how did he get there. Well, first of all, he watched Jesus every day. He talked 
to Jesus every day. He asked questions. He made mistakes in front of Jesus. He was corrected by Jesus. He was taught by Jesus. He denied Jesus. He failed Jesus. He repented to Jesus. But guess what? He did it all with Jesus. In the same way, you can be deeply transformed as you learn to do everything with Jesus. Failures, success, and on and on and on. Now, this is really important. Does that mean that by talking about this, we're diminishing the value of Bible reading, study groups, life groups, time in in private with God? Absolutely not. That's not to say that those things aren't vitally important. What it is meaning is that we can't look at those things as a magic bullet and say, if I just do this, then I'm going to be okay. It's, it's really moving beyond that and saying that if I want to live in the rest and the transformation that Jesus is offering, it's going to take a complete overhaul of the way I view my life. So after telling his followers that, you know, I'm, I'm going to take your heavy burdens, I'm going to take your heavy yoke, and I'm going to exchange it for peace. I'm going to exchange it for rest. And he says this, he says, take my yoke upon you. Now, we have to understand this because I don't know about you, but I'm not talking about yokes very often in day-to-day life, but Jesus does because he's practical and yokes were an everyday part of, of this culture. So a yoke was this wooden cross piece that would fasten over the necks of two different animals and it would allow them to attach a cart to it so that whether it was oxen or horse, whatever, they could pull this this tool through the fields. So why in the world is Jesus talking about a yoke? Why is Jesus saying, my yoke is easy, my burden is light? Well, partially it's because Jesus is comparing and contrasting. He's comparing his easy yoke with the heavy yoke of religion that was placed on the people by the Pharisees. Jesus is telling, hey, I'm the new high priest. Don't worry about the heavy, impossible load that the Pharisees have put on you to maintain Sabbath just to a T, to do this and this and this. He's saying, my yoke is light. It's not overly enslaving. It's not taxing. It's not impossible for you to hold up. But there is more. With Jesus, there's always more. Sometimes believers, I think, get so caught up in talking about the easy yoke of Jesus that we actually forget that he has indeed given us a yoke. He has put on something on top of us that we are to carry with us day in, day out. So, in other words, Jesus, this is, this is the beautiful picture. As, as we wear the yoke of Jesus, he doesn't place it on us in isolation, A yoke was always for two. So when Jesus places upon you his yoke, he doesn't just place it upon you, he wears it with you. And by the way, he does the heavy lifting. So as you walk, you're not walking with a yoke of just trying to get through life. You're bearing the weight of your life with Jesus as you take each and every step. So this this whole invitation, it's given far and wide. To everyone who's weary, everyone who's weighed down, and it doesn't matter what is doing the weighing down in your life. So, so let's get personal for a minute. Look within your own life. What is weighing you down today? Is it the burden of guilt for past sin? Jesus says, come to me. 
Is it the burden of worry? Maybe it's about money, your future. Come to Jesus. Is it the burden of relationships, battered with your spouse, your siblings, friends, so on? Come to Jesus. His promise is my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Maybe you're tired, you're weary, overwhelmed by the strains and the stresses. It's all the same. Come to Jesus. So we've, we've effectively answered this first question. How do we come to Jesus? He's invited us, but do we even know what that means? Well, yes, we, we come to Jesus by living every moment of every single day joined with Jesus, with an awareness that he's with us, that he wants to teach us, and by extension, transform us into his likeness. And by answering that question, what we've done is we've just exposed some holes in our soul that coming to Jesus only happens when I'm working really hard to do church things. From here now, we have the the ability to move on to the second question before we wrap things up. We know how to come to Jesus, but here's, here's an equally important question. What is the rest that Jesus is offering to you even look like? What does that rest even look like? You see, right now, you can walk out of this service and you can begin to apply this. You can start living every moment of your life with Jesus, allowing him to be the one that forms you over Netflix or whatever. But here's the, here's the problem. If we misunderstand the type of rest or the kind of rest, if you will, that Jesus is looking to give to us, then we're just going to keep on being internally fatigued. We're still going to be tired. You know, I, through the years of being a pastor, I've always had people come up to me and, you know, pastor, are you going to get a nap Sunday afternoon? I would say, nope, I hate naps. I do not like naps. Is there anyone else with me do you, that just doesn't like naps? Okay, few and far between. We're Solidarity, my friends, okay? Um, here's, here's the thing. There's a very specific reason that I do not like naps. It's because I wake up in a terrible mood every single time. Now, you can ask my wife. She will vouch for me. I'm in a bad mood when I wake up from a nap. So no matter how long it is. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just not giving myself enough time. You know, I do power nap. I've, I've slept two or three hour naps. It's terrible. You wake up feeling like death keeled over. So it's not for me. Um, so I do not take naps, but I find other ways of resting. So most of us can relate to this. The goal of a nap is to wake up refreshed, to keep on going with your day. So most of us think that spiritual rest will come from taking a spiritual nap by avoiding church. Man, I'm just tired. I just need some rest. By avoiding, I just need a break from disciplined activity. I just need to stop overcommitting with with times of prayer and this. I just need some rest. But the problem is this. Like me, we wake up in a bad mood from those spiritual rests. And we wake up more tired and fatigued and overwhelmed than we started I've learned that in order for me to rest, I have to do something that's going to decelerate my soul. I become very anxious because I'm a go-getter. I like to get stuff done. So I have to decelerate. So maybe that looks like me reading a book. Maybe it looks like me getting out my guitar. Whatever it is, I have to find a different way to go about rest, and so do we. We have to find a different way to go about rest. We have to learn that there are some areas of your life that are indeed connected that you have not considered connected. For example, you cannot live hurried in your body. 
You cannot live hurried in your soul and in your mind and at the same time experience deep rest. You can't. To say it plainly, rest and hurry, they are incompatible. They do not go together. They are opposing sources. You can't live hurried and live in the easy yoke of Jesus at the same time. Now, one of my favorite theologians is Dallas Willard. And and he said this. He said, the great enemy of spiritual life in our day is hurry. And you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was asked, what is the great threat in your spiritual life, Nathan? I don't know that I would say hurry. Few of us would consider the greatest threat in our spiritual lives to be the smartphone that's sitting in your pocket right now. Few of us would consider the greatest threat to your spiritual life being that TV that hangs in your living room or that calendar that's posted in your kitchen. But what we find is that when we live lives that are enslaved to being hurried, we don't have the time to take Jesus up on his invitation, which is come to me, because we're too hurried. We can't slow down enough to be with Jesus. The more busy that our lives become, the harder it is for us to choose Jesus over that which is distracting us. There's this New York Times article entitled Power Sleep, and it's this group of sleep experts that reveal that prior to Thomas Edison's light bulb, which was invented in 1879, the average American slept for at least 10 hours, closer to 11 That same article reveals that the national average for the United States is now seven and quickly dropping towards six. And and the end of their article says this. It says, are we losing our minds? Are we losing our minds? You see, we are more active than any society in the history of human existence. And we do all that we do on less sleep than any previous generation. That is not the way of Jesus. It's just not. And that means that each of us today and every day have to make a radical choice. Are we going to slow down to live our lives with God? Or are we going to live enslaved to hurry and miss out? Jesus said it this way. Are you going to gain the world but lose your soul? Psalm 46.10 says this. Be still and know that I'm God. Be still and know that I am God. So many of us, I've not met a follower of Jesus that doesn't want to be intimately attached to the Lord. But I have realized that there are few of us that are willing to do what it takes to be intimate with God. Because that requires a massive slowing down. God says, be still and know that I'm God. We can't accept this invitation to rest without first learning how to be still in his presence so we can deeply know this God who is love. My wife loves to pick on me. She, we, we might have a busy week and she's like, Nathan, how's it going? I'm like, it's full. I refuse to say I'm busy even when I am busy because what I know I'm admitting to is that I'm missing opportunities in relationship with God and my family and my friends and those around me. Here's the deal. It's the difference between having a full life with plenty to do and having a distracted life with way too much to do. And this isn't to say that our lives just need to be, we need to go, you know, 
go to a monk commune and, and cash in on our possessions and, and just have a life without any movement or requirements. No, it doesn't require that. The rest that Jesus wants you to live in, it's something that can be experienced even in your toughest moments, even in the moments of your deepest pain, in your most intense chaos. Paul reveals this in 2 Corinthians 4.16. He says, this is why we never give up. This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. Paul, he introduces this vital truth for us that we have to embrace about the rest of God. Christ's rest, it's not dictated by what is going on in your life. When you feel overwhelmed, when anxiety creeps in, and you want to enter into rest, what we often do is we look internally to try to fix it. We try to change our thoughts. We try to think differently. We try to change our mindset. But the problem is this, is that we need something we don't have. Jesus says it this way, John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not let them be afraid. So Jesus reveals something. He reveals that true rest has to be externally given to you. You don't have it in yourself. Jesus reveals that actually there is a variant of peace that the world is going to offer to you that I believe many of us take. It's dictated by circumstance. It's dictated by a lack of conflict. It's dictated by a lack of chaos. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? Life is good when circumstances are good. But when life gets hard, we have no peace. And what Jesus says is, hey, I give you a peace. In John 14, 27, my peace I give to you. I don't give it as the world gives. Don't be afraid. I've overcome the world. So this rest, this, this peace, it's stronger than your circumstances that you're facing right now. It's stronger than anything that you've ever gone through. And therefore, you can actually experience it today. And that is a promise from Scripture. In the midst of chaos, you can have peace. In the midst of chaos, you can have rest. We're not going to find it. We're not going to take hold of it this rest that Jesus is offering, because the resources of God, they don't come from within your own self. They come from him externally. So how how do you come to Jesus as we wrap up? It's very simple. You can start coming to Jesus this week by slowing down, by living every moment of your life in fellowship with him. And what is this rest? What is the rest that Jesus is offering to you? It's to externally receive that which you don't have peace and rest. Last passage I want to read to you is Matthew 16, verse 24. Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you want to follow me, be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. Question, how can Jesus say, come to me and find rest? But at the same time, Say, whoever wants to follow me must take up their cross to die. How can he say those two things at the same time? Death of the self and rest for the soul. How do they both take place? Well, guys, I believe it's because Jesus' rest is not what we thought it was. I believe it's because coming to Jesus is not what we believed it was. We've been led astray 
by faulty assumptions, that the right activities are always going to yield the right results, that formation only happens while we're active, so we're okay to just passively go through, that we can avoid slowing down and still enter into the deep life of transformation that Jesus is offering, that Jesus' rest is internally found rather than externally given. These are all wrong. Scripture reveals it. So the invitation that can set us free from these faulty assumptions is very simple, but it's profound. Come to me. So today, as we, as we close, I, I, may each one of us respond to this invitation to receive rest by coming to, to Jesus alone, by living unhurried lives that are in constant union with a God who wants to sustain you through it all. May you look to God rather than looking to yourself for transformation and trading your cares and your heaviest burdens for his rest in his life. Would you bow with me as we close today? A few questions for you as we wrap things up. How can you begin coming to Jesus differently this week? Here's the question. What is forming you right now? More than anything in in your life, what is forming you? Let that be Jesus. Secondly, what burdens do you need to release to Jesus today as you come to him? Is it past pain? Is it present difficulty? Is it worry about the future? Release it knowing that he is with you. Thirdly, how can you begin to ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life? You can slow down and be present with Jesus and develop new patterns and habits. And lastly, what have you been looking for inside yourself that you only can receive from God? Is it fulfillment? Is it joy? Is it peace? Is it rest? He wants to give it to you, but you're not going to find it in yourself. We follow you today. We make a commitment to saying yes to every good and perfect gift that comes from above. And we ask it in the name above every other name, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. Can you give the Lord praise this morning? Thank you, Lord. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Formation Podcast. We have conversations that lead to transformation. For more information about the show or share it with others, please visit rss.com slash podcast slash SFP for a direct link. If you found today's episode helpful, please consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening through. Thank you.